Pastor Kurt is at the ministerium uh, annual meeting uh, this weekend in Spokane, and so he is currently preaching at a little coffee shop um, that is coffee shop by week and uh, church by Sunday. So uh, we just want to uh, think about him this morning, but we're very, very excited about having um, Sharon Anderson with us this morning. I want to give you a little bio on her. Um, Sharon's been married to her husband, L.A., for 45 years, and they live in Sammamish. They have four adult children and three grandchildren, and she has recently retired. Um, she's a recently retired covenant pastor who served at Pine Lake Covenant Church for more than 20 years. Pine Lake is up in Sammamish, yeah. Uh, a degree from Fuller Theological Seminary and a certificate in spiritual direction from North Park Seminary mark the formal ways she lives into her passion to be a lifelong learner and disciple of Jesus. Besides serving as a spiritual director, she currently chairs the Board of Ordered Ministry in the ECC. Uh, retirement has allowed more space for reading, playing piano, going for long walks, and baking, and of course, grandchildren, for all of you that know that special blessing. Well, thank you to Kurt and this team for the invitation. I'm just delighted to be with you. I uh, went online a couple times this week to you know, hear Kurt preach how he did it and to hear your, to join in your worship, and that was wonderful. And so now to be here with you in person with those of you who are joining us online, it's a great privilege. This is God's word and God's time, and I'm God's servant, so let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is the one that's active to inform us, to encourage us, to challenge us, and so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I'm privileged to be able to continue in the series that you've been a part of called The Way of Jesus. That's a heavy term, The Way of Jesus. You've been looking at it not as a way to perform, not as a way to get brownie points or anything like that, but allowing the character of Jesus to be formed deeply within you so that it impacts the way you interact in the world. This way of Jesus, it leads us both to a deeper experience of him, which encourages us, but it also reminds us of the power of Christ through his spirit in each of our lives. You've been at it for a couple of weeks, right, in this challenge, and you already know the way of Jesus isn't always an easy calling. The parables that we've, you've been unfolding, and today's especially, reveal a lot of challenges. They challenge our way of thinking. They confront us with a revolutionary way of life. We forget how revolutionary this is. Maybe if we've walked with Jesus for a long time, we forget that he's calling us to something quite out of the norm. And he shows us the way, this life of love that he's given us. And today, we look at a parable that maybe is one of the most challenging of all. It's called the parable of the unforgiving servant. Just a question for you as you get started. Have you ever found yourself stirred with anger when somebody does something to you that you don't like? Okay, everybody's had that, right? We're pretty protective of our own rights, of my feelings about things. We're kind of comfortable when relational relationships are more transactional, quantifiable. We might like to know, how much do I have to give 
How much do I have to forgive? What am I going to get in return? I mean, that, there's this selfish nature in all of us around relationships. And this seems especially true when it comes to forgiveness. You know, to walk in the way of Jesus means that I give up those rights, those privileges of my own, and I extend mercy rather than keeping score. When we're walking in the way of Jesus, we're walking and receiving a way of mercy. So full disclosure, I want to tell you a story about my life where I had to exercise and continue to work on this this way of life, the way of forgiveness. It was a public setting, and I was leading a meeting that was wrought with complexity, and I had prepared very well and was presenting my comments when someone made their disagreement very visible by standing up right in front of me. I continued on with my presentation, but I was vexed. I was mad at this person who would dare to publicly humiliate me in this way, right in front of everybody else. And when I sometimes have <laughs> things that stir in me that I know are not of, you know, God wants to do a work in me, I often journal about those kinds of things. And I had to admit my anger at this person. I had to also say, God, through your spirit, I really do desire to forgive. So I journaled what, about it. I expressed to God my desire to forgive, to not hold this against that person, and to, to, to move on. And so I thought I had forgiven. I'd done the work. I'd forgiven. Well, a couple of months later, I was in another meeting. I wasn't running this meeting, but this same person showed up. And not only did they show up, their conduct in that meeting, though it wasn't directed at me this time, was less than stellar. Let's just put it that way. And I could not believe how my emotions stirred up. Like, really, God, I have to be with this person again? I thought I'd forgiven. And I had, in part. But there was more work to be done. And it was a work in me. I was still keeping score. I was saying, how many times must I forgive a brother or sister? Surely, Lord, not over and over again. That was where my forgiveness, one of the many ways I'm learning forgiveness. And you know, that question is what prompts this parable too. Where Peter comes to Jesus after this conversation in Matthew about what it means to confront people who sinned against us, what it means to walk in unity when there's conflict. So Peter, of course, he's got this figured out. And he says, Lord, surely there are limits to forgiveness, right? Let's read this passage together from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading at verse 21, and this is the NIV. Follow along on the screen, and when I finish reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you agree, you can say, Thanks be to God. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, 
Jesus continues, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and wept and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Then Jesus concludes, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. This parable, according to Klein Snodgrass, a wonderful commentary on the parables called Stories with Intent, he says this parable is one of the most challenging and compelling of all of Jesus' parables. It has a clear focus, as we know, on grace and responsibility, but also has some puzzling parts to it, doesn't it? Sometimes even what might look like a contradictory view of, is this what God's like, this king? Is, is this what God is like? I'm not sure. Maybe even an unflattering picture of what we might see God as. But this, this parable talks about not just mercy extended, but judgment executed, both parts. Now, there's some general rules with parables, and your, your pastor has probably already told you these, but I'm just going to remind you. When you read or, or when you listen to the parable this week in your 50-day challenge, remember that parables are not equations. You can't say this equals this and this equals that. It's not completely a mirror of reality. There are parts of the story that describe what is, and there are parts that are just extra to the story. Um, Snodgrass says parables are not theologies. In other words, we can't build everything we believe about God by reading a parable. It's a story that Jesus told with a purpose. So we can't use it to construct this idea of who God is. And I won't be going into that a whole lot, but it is kind of puzzling that the parable ends with this king saying, I'm going to torture you. And, you know, God is not a God who tortures. We know that. So we can't say that about God. However, we can't miss the main theme of this story that Jesus told and the purpose he had for it. And that is that when mercy is received, mercy must be given. Mercy received requires that mercy be given. 
So let's just unpack this story a little bit more. It's written in three different parts, three different scenes, if you will, and then Jesus' explanation at the end. First of all, this king, his merciful decision. This is verses 23 through 27. The king comes. He's coming to settle accounts with his servants. And this first servant comes. He may well have been a servant who was contracted by the king to collect debts or to collect taxes from other people, kind of like an IRS agent, right? He's sent out to collect from other people. Um, maybe he had owed this debt, but it seems like an awfully big debt. And whatever the relationship was, the king has come rightfully to say, this is what you now need to pay to me. I want to settle accounts. And this servant is not able to pay it back. Now, you can't miss the contrast in the amount of debt in this story. This was startling for me to read about, too. The NIV translates this as, what does it say, thousands... 10,000 bags of gold, some people say 10,000 talents, it's uh, translated as, whatever it is, it's a startling amount. Let me give you an idea of that. A talent in the, in the New Testament time was a measurement of gold, and depending on whatever, it could have been gold, silver, copper, but depending on what metal was used, a talent was equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. That's a word you can see in the New Testament for an amount of money that was paid. In fact, a day's wages for a regular worker was one denarius, one denarii per day. Okay. So you, you go to work, you get paid one denarii, right? That's a, that's a normal thing. Well, this debt that was owed to the king was 60 million denarii. And if that were a regular worker who went out to the fields and got one denario a day, it would take that person 164,000 years to pay that back. And I don't know anybody that wants to work 164,000 years um, to repay a debt. Now, this could have been simple hyperbole in this story. Jesus uses it often. Or it could have been the actual amount that was owed. But whatever it is, we should be like, no way. There's no way anybody could ever pay that back. It's, a, it's beyond... It's beyond anybody. And so the, the first servant, what does he do? He, he begs. He begs for mercy. Verse 26 says, be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. I kind of doubt he could have, but he's hoping he'll get off. And what does the story tell us? The king responds with pity. And here's the astounding part. He doesn't just say, yes, I'll set up a payment plan for you. And here's the way we're going to do it. No, what does he do? He cancels the debt. He totally forgives every bit of it and lets the man go. And when we hear that, when Jesus hears, heard that first, they would have been like, wow. I mean, imagine if every dime you ever earned in your career had to be paid back in a debt and you couldn't pay it back and you, you begged for it and somebody just said, no, I want, I'm not going to set up a payment plan. It's forgiven. Go. Go in peace. Debt-free, this man goes. No need to indenture himself or his family, all of the horrible things that might have come. What unbelievable mercy. What pity that king had. The enormity of that act of forgiveness should startle each one of us. Scene two. 
If the first scene made us wonder about that kind of extravagant mercy, the second scene fills us with indignation. And it should. Because as he's going out, he or she, it doesn't say what, but I'm, I'm assuming it might have been a man, just because they were the use of the workers, not because men are, okay, that was, that was bad. <laughs> it could have been a male or female. But this first servant, who's been forgiven this unbelievable debt, goes out and immediately sees a fellow servant who owns, owes him just a pittance, 100 silver coins, just small amount. And notice how it's described how he, when he sees this fellow servant. He rushes at him. He's violent. He grabs him. He takes him around the neck. And he says, pay back what you owe me. And the fellow servant, once again, probably scared, kneels down, same posture, same words as the first one. Oh, down on my knees, he begs. Please be patient with me and I will pay it back. A request for patience, for mercy. And what does he get from that first servant? Complete refusal, the scripture says. He refused. This first servant who had received such mercy couldn't even extend an, an ounce of it to someone else. And that's what makes his actions so reprehensible. The contrast of the way he'd been treated and the way he treated the person that he saw. Well, those actions are reported back to the king. And here's where the contrasts are heightened and consequences come. Because verses 31 through 34, the third scene, the king brings that first servant back in and points out the utter wickedness of someone who would gladly accept and receive mercy and forgiveness of a canceled debt, but show no mercy for someone else who hold him just a fraction. You know, if, when we hear this, if we had heard Jesus saying this, teaching it for the first time, we would have had this sense at the beginning, like, yay, oh, what mercy. We would have cheered there, and then we would have heard the other part and think, what a reprehensible, horrible man who or woman, who would not forgive this debt. What a generous, merciful king, and what a stingy, selfish, focused on it themselves person. Because when the tables were turned and forgiveness, when tables are turned, forgiveness that's not extended really hasn't been received. Because if there's anything in this story that is true, it's the one of whom much is forgiven that needs to forgive as well. And what we see in this one, the one who was forgiven so much forgives nothing. While we as hearers are still kind of grappling with this, whirling with this story and feeling anger perhaps at this first servant, Jesus explains it in this final verse in verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Jesus is linking the treatment that we've received from our heavenly Father, this immeasurable grace, with a responsibility, a, a call, the way of Jesus to extend that to others. And Jesus says, offer it from the heart. 
Do this not just because you have to, but sincerely do it. Jesus is making this. It's a direct link. Direct link between offering forgiveness and being forgiven ourselves. We can't, we can't escape those words. God's prior action of grace and mercy for us is to be extended to others. We might shift, you know, a well-known biblical mandate that says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. We might say it this way, do unto others as God has done to you. Do unto others as God has done to you. That's the way of forgiveness in the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful. He's calling us to be merciful because then we receive mercy. And in the prayer that Jesus teaches us, the Lord's Prayer, he says this. Pray this as you pray. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Now this week, in your 50-day challenge, you're going to be praying the Lord's Prayer. You're going to make that part of the rhythms of your paying attention to what God is doing in your life. And I wonder, like I have done this week because I've been looking at this passage, if I'm going to perhaps pause a bit and consider what that actually means when I say, Lord, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who've sinned against me. Sounds pretty, pretty stern, doesn't it? This is a hard calling, friends. This is not an easy way to walk this way of Jesus. Because Jesus upends the way we might prefer to negotiate relationships. We might want to be like Peter. We want forgiveness to be measured, at least on our side of the equation, right? I've already forgiven enough, haven't I, Lord? I've done it seven times, maybe ten times, and Jesus says no. We want full forgiveness from the Father. I don't know anybody who doesn't. We want mercy on our side, right? When I have sinned, I want the full mercy of God to, to wipe it away, to cancel that debt. But when it comes to forgiving others, maybe seven times is enough. When we're honest with ourselves, when we're honest with God, we can't help but recognize the enormity of the unpayable debt we owe to God because of our sin. And God's stunning, come-up-close, merciful forgiveness. And when that forgiveness takes root in our hearts, when we know we are forgiven, it changes us. It calls us to respond in a way that says, I will forgive from the heart. I will exclude all calculations. I will stop counting altogether because I've been forgiven so much. It calls for a deep sincerity on our part that extends that same personal, real act of forgiveness to others. That's what this parable is teaching us, that forgiveness from God must be replicated. It must be lived out, friends, in our relationships with others. If not, we're held accountable. You know, the way this parable ends is a bit startling. Two realities in the kingdom of God, the necessity of mercy and forgiveness and the seriousness of failure to live into that, to show mercy. Snodgrass in his commentary says it this way again, forgiveness not shown is forgiveness 
not known. Let me say that again. Forgiveness not shown is forgiveness not known. That tension between having received God's forgiveness and then saying, I'm accountable then. If, God for, if God's the merciful king, he will forgive. But God is also the king who judges, who holds us accountable and says, my way, my Jesus way, is that you would model that same mercy and forgiveness to others. Now, one sermon on forgiveness is not enough to unpack the enormity and the complexity of this topic. And I would just say that, yes, we can, we can go out of this meeting tonight, this time together today, and say, yes, I affirm that I need to forgive. We nod our heads and we say, yes, I will do that. But we have to remember some complexities in that. It's not so simple. It might be a long process. It might take many times of prayer or journaling on my part to really move forward in forgiveness. I referred to a book this week in preparing, a book by Ken Sandy that's called The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. Very helpful book. But he offers this reminder that forgiveness can't be done on our own strength. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. You and I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. But the Holy Spirit will give us power to do it, and then there are some practical ways we can live into forgiveness. And I found something that Sandy wrote in his book very helpful, and that is that he tells what forgiveness is not. This helped me this week, and I hope it's helpful to you. At least three things that forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a series of decisions, an act of our will. In obedience to Jesus' call, then we, because we've received mercy, we choose. We choose to extend it to others. We may not feel any different toward the person who's wronged us. In fact, there may be some very legitimate um, reasons for anger and being upset. That's normal. Forgiveness is not a feeling. We may never have warm feelings for that person, or we may never even have a restored relationship. Forgiveness doesn't mean you necessarily have to restore everything that has been broken. But it does mean you make a choice. Make a choice, sometimes daily, sometimes hourly, to not hold the sin against that person. So forgiveness is not a feeling. The second thing forgiveness is not is not forgetting. You know, forgetting can kind of be a passive process where over time things fade from our memory and it doesn't hurt quite as bad and that's what happens. But forgiveness, because it's an active choice, we decide not to dwell on the offense. We decide not to rehearse those sins again and again in our minds. You know, if you or I have been badly hurt by someone, those scars might remain even if we do forgive. There are parts of that that, are st- that may still hurt and come to the surface. And if we've been the one who's hurt someone else, we may be forgiven. But the effects of that sin, the effects of what happened might linger on. So forgiveness, whatever it means, does not mean some kind of erasure like it's gone Forgiveness is not forgetting. And here's the one I think is most important, and it was for me as I thought of that this this week, 
and that is forgiveness is not excusing. Forgiveness does not mean I'm saying that what happened didn't matter, that it wasn't really wrong, it wasn't really a sin. Think of the the story itself. Forgiveness dealt honestly with the debt that really was owed. There really was a debt that had to be paid. Real debts, real offenses committed. And forgiveness acknowledges that, maybe names it, maybe says, this is what was done to me, or this is what I did to someone else. And it doesn't excuse it. But it's a choice, without excusing it, to say, since God's forgiven me, I will choose to forgive you. I will choose. So forgiveness is not a feeling, it's not forgiving, it's not excusing, but it is stepping into the way of Jesus. We know that Jesus himself at the cross, the ultimate indignity, humiliation, undeserved punishment, looked on those who had done it and said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. This is the way of Jesus. It wasn't like there was nothing to... The pain was there. The reality of what he went through was there. But he had made a choice. The way of Jesus is to forgive. You know, I confess in my own life, I still cringe when I see that person whose behavior really affronted me. I don't want to run into that person. I'll just admit it. Especially in a public place. And yet, without excusing it, I've been practicing this choice of forgiveness. This choice to see this other person as one who is loved and forgiven by God in the same way that I am. That who that person is. Now, in the scheme of things, that story I told is kind of a small thing. It's not, you know, it's nothing that major. But you and I both know no matter how long we lived, have lived and what's happened to us, there are offenses, there are things that are done against us that are extremely monumental. Sins that cause deep pain have lasting consequences. And maybe even as you're listening to this this morning, the Holy Spirit has stirred some of those things in your mind. Things where you've had to learn the process of forgiveness. It's an ongoing process. But I would say that into those spaces, whether a big offense or a small, those of us who follow Jesus choose, first of all, to just soak in the mercy we've received. To just sit and soak that we have been forgiven. We sang about it earlier that, that I wrote it down here, but now I can't find it. The call to mercy. It was part of our, I heard mercy call my name. That's what it was. It was that phrase. I heard mercy call my name. That's the way God calls us according to mercy. And because of that, we soak in that mercy. We receive the full forgiveness, which is expressed in this transforming power that then allows us to choose to extend forgiveness to others. We don't offer it because they deserve it. We offer it because we've received it. We don't excuse or diminish it by saying, oh, it's no big deal. But neither do we keep a tally. 
of our own acts of forgiveness or of sins that have been committed against us. Instead, I invite you, as you pray this Lord's Prayer this week, and you come to that phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, that you just sit in the mercy of God to know that it's been forgiven, friends. We sang this this morning too. We are free. Nothing you have done you have to carry with you. God forgives you. And because of that, we kneel in wonder before this God of mercy. Amazed. Your debt's, done. Your debt's paid. My debt's paid. We are free. And then we stand. We stand in the power of the Spirit because of that experience. And we extend a hand of forgiveness to others. This is the way of Jesus. And may the Spirit help us to walk in this way of forgiveness. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we do marvel at your mercy. None of us come here with anything big to offer you, but you see us and love us as we are. You tell us who we are and you tell us you are forgiven people. You are mine, and I forgive. I cancel the debt completely. And Lord, because of that, we, we desire, even if it's difficult, to walk in the way of forgiveness, to not be bound with the poison of unforgiveness that would tear us down, but to offer to others what we ourselves have received. We need your Spirit to do this, Lord. Grace us again with the power to stand in a posture of mercy and to hear you, hear you say to us, yes, mercy received, now give it to others. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus who taught us this truth. Amen.